This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Ron Dahl is a professor in the School of Public Health and the director of the Institute for Human Development at UC Berkeley. And I know that we over on this side of um, the coast have been trying to recruit him for years, so he's only been here two years, so he's, it's still, we still kind of can't believe he's here, so we're all very happy about that. He's a pediatrician um, who studies the development of regulatory systems, sleep arousal, and affect regulation. These regulatory systems, um, reward and executive control, are the foundation of lifelong health. They influence the key health behaviors, impulsivity, delay of gratification, eating follows closely, sleep, um, and their relevance to uh, behavioral and emotional disorders in, in children. He focused on, on interdisciplinary approaches to understanding the adolescent brain development and this developmental period as a unique opportunity for early intervention. And he also has his eye um, toward policy implications of this work. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here and to have an opportunity to stretch our thinking a bit about some of the questions that have come up. And it's also great to follow so many really strong presentations that have, real, that have helped to, to set the stage for the, the things I want to, to say. Um, this is the essence of the point that I want to make, that although there may be many intervals in the developmental trajectory within which these factors become important, I'm going to argue that adolescence, and particularly early adolescence, which overlaps with the child, some of the childhood studies that uh, Susan Redland mentioned before, creates a perfect storm of negative synergy. And that is, you've already heard about the negative spirals related to sleep, stress, and metabolic interactions, and metabolic balance. And I'm going to argue that when we think about what's happening in terms of brain behavior, social context interactions at the onset of puberty and into adolescence, that the combination of these two are creating a huge, high-impact storm of effects that influence not just obesity and, and physical health, but a wide range of health issues. And that's really what I want to talk about today, a broad framework of thinking about health. And I'm going to step back for a few minutes and talk about the health paradox of adolescence. And I call it a paradox because from one perspective, adolescence is the healthiest period of the lifespan. From a physical health perspective, if you follow children from infancy through toddlerhood, through school age, into adolescence, everything you can measure gets better and stronger. Strength, speed, reaction time, reasoning abilities, immune function, resistance to cold, heat, hunger, injury, dehydration, you name it. Everything gets better cognitively, physically. But 
What happens to overall morbidity and mortality between school age and the end of adolescence? It increases 200 to 300%. And the primary sources of that morbidity and mortality are problems with the control of behavior and emotion. It's the increasing rates of accidents, suicide, homicide, depression, alcohol and substance use, violence, reckless behaviors, eating disorders, sexually transmitted diseases, health problems related to risky sexual behaviors, and, as has already been highlighted, obesity in childhood and adolescence is very, very likely to lead to, uh, to lifetime obesity. Now, this is just the sim- a few simple data slides. If you look at uh, overall morbidity and mortality, uh, this is just death rates. In a 10-year period from 5 to 14, total death rates in the United States, this is back to 2003, 6,900. You take a comparable 10-year period that goes from mid-adolescence into early adulthood, and it's tripled. And the main sources, injuries, homicide, and suicide. Um, But that's only the tip of the iceberg, because if you take something like smoking behavior, which is going to show up uh, with morbidity and mortality decades later, almost everyone who's going to be an adult smoker and have emphysema and heart disease and related problems began smoking between ages 10 and 20 years of age. I can show the same data for alcohol. The increase in binge drinking, heavy drinking, uh, and problematic drinking is happening during adolescence. Um, In fact, if you do a a cartoon version and you look at increase in drug use disorders and depression, they're very, very different trajectories, except here, the inflection point up is happening in in mid-adolescence. It's suggesting that if we really want to get at the root of a huge amount of the morbidity and mortality in the lifespan, we really should think about that ramp up that occurs in adolescence. And it raises some compelling questions. Why is the physically healthiest time of the life such an important window and period of trajectory towards so much morbidity and mortality? And again, lots of people have, have drawn attention to this. The Dobbs quote, the United States spends about a billion dollars a year on programs to counsel adolescents and do education related to violence, gangs, suicide, sex, substance use, and other potential pitfalls. And the data suggests these are not working very well. Now, I'm going to argue, these are very complex issues. I'm not trying to reduce it to one or two factors. But I think that there is increasing evidence that it is primarily affective, emotional and motivational influences on behavior, and how these interact with risk and risk-promoting social contexts that really push, tip the balance toward these health problems. And there's an increasing role of social and affective changes at puberty helping to tip this balance. Now, uh, this is a very complex story. I'm not going to go through a lot of the neuroscience data um, at this point. Actually, we just published, Evelyn Cronin and I just published a review two weeks ago in Nature Reviews Neuroscience, making the argument that the the old image of, uh, you know, that the problem with adolescence is an immature prefrontal cortex is really just not supported by the data. It's not a simple story that we have immature prefrontal cortex in adolescence. What really supports the data is that there's an increasing influence of these social and affective aspects of of the neural circuits that can tip the balance in situations that are social and emotional. But adolescents are quite capable of making good decisions um, independent of those influences. Uh, That's a whole long story, but it is a theme I want to highlight that these social and emotional influences are a key part of the problem. It's part of a set of changes in these neural systems at puberty that are true not just for humans, but in many species. There's this biobehavioral activation 
of a tendency to explore, seek novelty, be sensation-seeking, and a very interesting aspect of this, as we review in the Nature Reviews Neuroscience paper, is this increased motivational salience of social status. Of course kids want to be admired and like status, and of course adults at every age of the lifespan do as well. But the intensity with which salience, having peers admire you, increases in relative terms at the onset of puberty. And it's a very interesting dimension. Now, there's lots of interesting mechanistic questions about particular hormones, the neuroendocrine uh, substrates, the particular neural systems that are being influenced by some of the hormones, what are social experiences. These are very complex issues. I'm not trying to overly reduce it. But, and these are great areas for investigation as a part of this. It's part of a larger set of changes. I use the metaphor of igniting passions to capture these emotional, motivational changes. And I like the term igniting passions not only because it captures the literal romantic interest and motivation that kicks in at puberty uh, for <clears throat> that has its own intense motivational changes and the emotional intensity that, that kids have after puberty, but it's also capturing another aspect of passion, and that is this is a key time for motivational learning. Kids become passionate about particular kinds of goals. Yes, kids develop hobbies at earlier ages. They develop interests at earlier ages, but they also develop crushes at early ages, but they don't fall in love until puberty. And in the same way kids fall in love with a different kind of intensity, they can fall in love with music, with literature, with a particular religion, with a particular approach to life, a particular sport. And this ability to passionately align individually motivated intrinsic goals to a particular kind of activity is something that kicks in at puberty. And I think this has liabilities. Kids can align those passions to very dangerous and unhealthy things, and it creates opportunities to align these natural motivations to healthier patterns. And this is part of a larger framework we've been interested in. In fact, there'll be a second conference in November that we're hosting between uh, AHD and the Institute of Personality and Social uh, Research and uh, the uh, Child's <coughs> and actually the Youth Policy Group on campus, looking at the science, the social sculpting of intrinsic motivations, and in particular adolescence as a time for that. Now, this is part of a larger model. It's a tipping point model because, again, there are many, many factors. It's not a simple uh, you know, impact of a particular system. But the part of what's happening is that at the onset of puberty, there's a relative intensification of these social and emotional influences. And the ability to have cognitive control, to use and recruit these frontal systems, at the same time is more variable. And in addition, puberty has been happening earlier in recent history, and the social scaffolding and support that helps uh, young people make these decisions uh, has been uh, changing as well. And again, I want to highlight this as a, at a metaphor level, this idea that in the trajectory of adolescent development, there are these tipping points when very complex interactions across cognitive, emotional, motivational, social systems can be tipped in negative and positive ways. And I think that's a way to think about some of the sleep and stress influences. Now, the focus of this, you know, this whole conference today and what I want to highlight as a part of this perfect storm focuses on sleep and sleep arousal regulation. And I think it's important to step back again and, and broadly and think why is sleep so important in the development of these regulatory systems? And this is a fascinating and exciting story. There's growing evidence for the role of sleep in learning, memory, and brain development. Uh, it's intertwined with several aspects of physical and emotional health, as well as metabolic balance and obesity, as we we're talking about, and has critical implications for intervention and policy in youth. There's been rapid progress in several areas relevant to understanding the role of sleep, the neuroscience of sleep-wake systems, the neuroscience of the circadian systems, the neuroscience of learning and memory, developmental neuroscience broadly, especially cognitive, affective, and social neuroscience, 
and the developmental psychology understanding of the roles of family, social, and cultural influences. What we need more of is integration across these levels. Increasingly, uh, there are groups going after one slice of this that tend to often ignore other aspects of these complex issues, especially the social and cultural interaction with these uh, influences. Again, it's a fascinating story. I don't want to go, even though I'm very, very interested in how very early periods, as as Susan was saying, uh, you know, maybe infant sleep and toddler sleep can really set the stage for these trajectories in powerful ways, and I think that's important, um, that it is important to take the perspective of how important sleep is in the developing brain. The average two-year-old child has spent about 9,500 hours sleeping, um, or about 13 months, and 8,000 hours in all waking activities combined. And between two and five, if you count naps, about equal amounts of time spent sleeping and waking. So in many ways, sleep is the primary activity of the developing brain. Um, And also, it's important to recognize that um, across species, it's important uh, during early development. Uh, Sleep is more important uh, in early development, whether you're talking about puppies, kittens, baby monkeys, human, infants, or drosophila. Periods of brain development and and early development are associated with a greater need for sleep. And that's not just rest. It's actually operationalized as sleep. And I'm going to get to the differences in a moment. Um, Finally, one more framing issue before I dive into the adolescent story again is this idea that sleep is intertwined with multiple regulatory systems, particularly from a developmental perspective. It's not just going to sleep. It's sleep and arousal regulation And that's intertwined with sleep and temperature regulation, sleep and metabolic regulation, sleep and circadian regulation, and sleep and emotion regulation. And the earlier you go in development, the more intertwined these systems are, including the social context that sets the stage for these. But I want to highlight one other issue about the framework for thinking about sleep. And again, I'm just going to do this at a conceptual, almost metaphorical level for a moment, and I will come back later to how this may be operationalized in our empirical studies. Uh, it's part of what I think of as this, the mystery of sleep, that you know, sleep is ubiquitous across species. It's necessary for life. Uh, animals can't even survive without uh, sleep. And yet the actual function and purpose of sleep is, is still relatively unknown. And in order to really zoom in on that, it's important to highlight the difference between sleep and rest, because rest is not sleep. And it's interesting to think about what the difference is. And and without going into a long um, consideration of this, one of the things to highlight is that if you rest, even if you can meditate and deep relaxation and clear your mind, but you remain vigilant to cues in the environment, you are not asleep. And that alone, if you, if you were allowed 10 hours in bed to rest, but every time you fell asleep, somebody blasted noise, you would not feel very restored. Uh, in fact, it's part of a larger set of paradoxes about sleep, that sleep is an active process with many brain regions showing increased activity, that the patterning, timing of sleep in the circadian pattern is essential to restorative process. But this last point is that behaviorally, it requires to be asleep rather than resting is losing awareness and responsiveness to the environment. There's a relative disconnection between neural systems in sleep and different patterns of disconnection in different stages of sleep that um, is required to get this restorative state. And so the question is, why does the brain need to lose vigilance, lose interconnected patterns of functioning for long periods of time? And I think it's part of the compelling story about sleep and brain development. But there's an evolutionary and uh, part of this that's worth considering for a moment. And again, across species, because sleep is uh, loss of vigilance, sleep is restricted to safe times and places. And every species solves this in different ways. 
But, and whether that's physical niches or temporal niches or behavioral patterns where birds on one side of the flock sleep with one eye open and the other eye closed and the other side of the, on the, the other eye and only the birds in the middle can close both eyes and get REM sleep. But it's part of this concept that I want to highlight when we think about sleep and stress. And that is that sleep and vigilance are opponent processes. If you're not in a safe environment, the last thing you want to do from a survival perspective is lose your vigilance. And it it makes sense that vigilance and threat and perceived threat should interfere with sleep because of this. And if you think of this from a, a human evolutionary point of view, not with modern houses and locked doors and, and alarms, but rather the evolutionary conditions with, within which our sleep evolved, it's quite compelling to think about the situation. Because in, in stage four sleep, we're completely unresponsive, particularly young people. REM sleep, we lose muscle tone. We can't sleep in trees. And the human ancestral environment was filled with nocturnal hunting carnivores that make the modern Serengeti look like a safe place. And yet there's no evidence of physically safe sleep sites from the anthropologic record. And the point here is that human sleep and human stress evolved in social construct terms. It's as Robert Sapolsky has made uh, clear in a lot of his work with olive baboons and other social primates, that the real stress isn't a leopard approaching a troop of baboons because it's not going to attack an attack troop of baboons. The real stress isn't doing dangerous things like driving 70 miles an hour on the interstate, which is physically dangerous. The real stress is social evaluation and social rejection because an alone primate's a dead primate. And this tendency to find social threats so deeply vigilance-enhancing and sleep-interfering is part of the framework for thinking about the interactions between sleep and stress. But my point is those have important developmental implications. Infants don't need to worry much about vigilance until the age they start to crawl. And then they have the beginnings of this, and that's when they start having their separation anxiety and night wakings go up. But in adolescence, this takes on another form in terms of the need for individual vigilance. And it's part of a set of changes and vulnerabilities in sleep that I want to focus on in the, in the final and rest, the rest of this talk. And that is that there are profound changes in sleep and circadian regulation at about the time of the onset of puberty. And this could be a whole talk in and of itself. There's elegant work. Many colleagues around the country and around the world have been doing work in this area. And I'm going to oversimplify some complicated issues to highlight the points relevant to this conference. One thing that happens as kids start into puberty and have this rapid growth is they actually become sleepier. Their response to not getting enough sleep and opportunities to sleep, their capacity to go to sleep, manifests, as Mary Karskadden showed many years ago at Stanford, in increased objective sleepiness. There are also some slow-wave sleep and REM changes that I'll talk about in a minute, and circadian changes. It's part of this two-process model. Process C, the circadian system, has a set of changes linked to puberty. And process S, the homeostatic aspect or sleep pressure system, also does. What are the developmental changes in the sleep-wake homeostasis pressure system? Again, some really interesting work in terms of looking at slow wave, stage three, four sleep, deep sleep, the qualitative part that was shown in earlier studies to be relevant to some of these shifts in glucose metabolism, and that can be measured quantitatively as slow wave activity, and this can be looked at as a sleep propensity toward falling asleep. I'm just going to highlight one study. Uh, Oscar Yenny led this work uh, when he was doing a postdoc with Mary Kaskaden. They've done some more work uh, back at the University of Zurich. 
looking at this longitudinally. This just highlights uh, at, the, at the simplest visual level, if you look at uh, these different sleep bouts, the amount of slow waves in the same individual at age 12, Tanner 1, and age uh, at 14.5 at Tanner 5, the intensity of the slow wave sleep has really diminished a lot. Uh, the more interesting issue uh, that has been highlighted is that if you model this work, and, and Peter Ackerman, working with this group, has done some really elegant mathematical work, that it's actually not the decay or the, the, the expression of these slow waves during sleep that changes as a function of puberty, but in fact the process of building up the pressure. It is this building up of process S uh, the the, the, the uh, time constants of these that ha- that really change, and uh, again, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to go over some complicated things, but if you look at the decay time constant, it's really the same: 2.8 hours, 2.7 hours during sleep. It's the rise time of wakefulness. It's the way wakefulness builds up this homeostatic process that seems to change, which has some really interesting implications. Monique uh, Lebourgeois, who's also working with collaborating with that group, has been looking at even younger children uh, as a uh, thinking and modeling how some of these changes are occurring, including the shift at puberty. I'm going to set that aside for a moment and just talk for a minute about the circadian system that's been alluded to already as a part of the problem for this perfect storm. And this tendency for phase shift in the timing of sleep is not just for humans. Uh, it's been seen in rhesus, it's seen in octagon degu, it's seen in rat, uh, mouse, uh, as was reviewed in, in the paper that is highlighted here and, and work that Mary Karskadin was involved in. Um, and then some really interesting work uh, that Till Rodenberg uh, has done in Europe, uh, actually some huge samples. This is a, one of the early papers that got a lot of attention. Uh, just looking at the midpoint of uh, sleep in uh, this European sample on free days, uh, and this delay in the, in the midpoint of sleep when people get to choose their sleep is really marked uh, in between 10 and 20. And then at 20, he actually thinks that this is biological end of adolescence, you begin to see this drop in males and females. Now, um, and then there's some, you know, there's actually uh, some intrinsic uh, circadian rhythm work, and then this dim light melatonin onset work that Mary did that was a really heroic amount of work uh, to, to get kids in constant conditions and really look at dim light melatonin uh, independent of their, uh, their, pa- their actual patterns of exposure to light. You see this, uh, uh, this, is, this is controlled for all the things you want to see, and, and, and you still see the shift in the dim light melatonin onset as kids get to be Tanner stage four and five. Um, so this is part of a larger story that kids and adolescents phase delay, um, and there are various reasons for this. But I now want to shift back to the larger story. Okay, there are these changes in slow-wave sleep that, that contribute to the tendency for kids to be able to stay up later, but they get sleepier. There's the circadian shift that leads to the tendency to prefer going to bed later and staying up later and, and sleeping in later. But I want to consider these two sets of biological changes, not in terms of modern contemporary society, but 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. Imagine a 15-year-old who's sleepier, who's built up uh, more of the pressure for process S um, and is really tired and is trying to read by candlelight at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And how late are they going to stay awake? Not very long. And similarly, the wake-up contingencies are pretty strong in those conditions. But, of course, kids aren't reading by candlelight anymore. And it's not just the exposure to bright light. It's the exposure to highly arousing stimuli. It's the peers and the social activities and the Internet and the TV shows and the movies and the cell phones and the text messages. 
and, and the access to light, which is directly impacting this, this uh, circadian system, the stress and anxiety and vigilance that's high as kids are going through this really tumultuous period of time. And then their catch-up sleep on the weekends and, and on the holidays is even later and then pushes the circadian system even further. And then there's the 24-7 society pressures of work, sports, homework, projects, etc. And then, combined with all this pressure for later bedtime and light exposure late in the day to extend our circadian pattern in the way that it tends to want to go anyway, school start is early. The average school night bedtime is 11.30 p.m. in high school seniors. Average wake-up time on school days is 6.15 a.m. With 10% of United States high school students needing to get up by 5.30 a.m. to catch their buses. More than 15% of high school students report averaging six or less hours in bed on school nights. Leave aside how often they're waking up to look at the vibrating text message on their uh, cell phone. Now, this is part of a larger cycle. The catch-up sleep on weekend pushes the circadian system to further delays. The use of stimulants, caffeine, selling each other's Ritalin, and a hundred other variations of, of using stimulants is increasingly rampant in the, this age group. And a lot of stress and conflict that increases arousal makes it harder to fall asleep. This is the first part of the perfect storm, that the pre-adolescent sleep timing and then the adolescent both bioregulatory pressure, psychosocial pressure, and then to, to later onset of sleep, but societal pressure to get up early for at least five days for, for a certain set of months uh, on school days creates sleep deprivation and virtual jet lag. Uh, and this is a huge part of a set of this, you know, this storm of sleep loss and sleep deficiency, which I think is a great term that we should be using. Now, the question is, I, I think there's a little doubt. The epidemiologists, there's many, many, many studies, and it's not just the United States. This is happening around the world. South Koreans probably have the highest rates of sleep deprivation in their adolescence in Japan, increasingly in different countries around the world. But let's just focus on the United States for a moment. Um, if 30 to 40 percent of U.S. adolescents are typically get sleep deficient, uh, getting less than optimal sleep, what are the consequences? And there literally are people out there saying, hey, they just need to learn how to get by on less sleep. We all do. We all push ourselves. It's part of a, you know, a, a driven, ambitious society. But these are scientific and health behavior questions. And we need more data. Um, there's a lot of data in adults. There's increasingly data in adolescents. But here's a brief summary of what we know. The first thing is Adolescents get very sleepy. And sleepy means falling asleep. But when do they fall asleep? Not during exciting social interactions, not during the things they want to do. It's when there's low arousal, boring situations, uh, like classrooms, driving cars, um, late at night. And that's a huge part of the consequence. But in addition to the literal difficulty falling asleep, there's tiredness. Tiredness is motivational change. It's hard to make yourself do things, especially when the rewards and consequences are distant or abstract, when you're tired. Difficulties with focused attention, irritability and reactive aggression, well documented in both animals and in humans, decreased mood, uh, depression, di diminished motivation for social engagement, negative synergy with alcohol effects, direct effects on learning, um, as Matt Walker's lab and a number of other labs around the, the, the world are showing increasingly the, the importance of sleep for learning, memory, and, 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 and skill learning as well, procedural learning as well. Increased use of caffeine and stimulants. And the focus of this conference, this influence on metabolic regulation and metabolic balance contributing to obesity. But I want to highlight it's not just any one of those. It's the interactions across these domains. And I could pick any two or three that you want to focus on. 
Decreased mood and depression, how is that going to affect learning? How is that going to affect motivation in positive ways? What's the relationship between depression and obesity and metabolic syndrome? We know from data in Pitt, at the University of Pittsburgh that the, uh, the chubbier kids were more at risk for developing depression across adolescence and vice versa. Again, they may be relatively small effects individually, but they're interactions. And we could go on and on about thinking about the interactions across these domains, but it's hard enough doing research in any one domain, and it's hard to get people thinking about these different interactions. It gets back to this metaphor of trajectories and tipping points in development, that any, it's not going to be a magic bullet that if kids just get more sleep, that's going to you know, improve all these issues in their emotions, um, or if they just get more physical activity, or if, I mean, you could pick any one of those. But when you think of the stresses and complexities of these systems interacting, helping some of these key dimensions can help tip the balance in a positive way. It's not going to be a magic bullet, but it's important to assess, both scientifically and through intervention studies, how much can we improve the likelihood for young people to take a positive trajectory if we scaffold and support some of these key domains during this period of time. Now, as I said, we've been interested in this broadly. Um, we've been interested in this from a developmental neuroscience perspective. We think that part of the mechanism that creates these vulnerabilities for risk-taking and substance use and other negative trajectories is this shift in motivational and emotional systems at puberty. But we also think that these same shifts create opportunities for motivational learning and for aligning these passions to positive, healthy ways of, of living and behaving. And I think this, uh, this is a really important set of issues for us to think about. I love to focus on the sleep version of this because I think it highlights, it's a wonderful example of this larger set of issues. That, uh, of, I'm not trying to reduce any of this to biology or to neuroscience, but, but the opposite. It's to say how thinking about the, 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 the sensitivity of these neural systems allows a small biological change to be amplified by social context, including social context like SES, like perceived threat, uh, the, the, the social adversities that adolescents are going through, the, 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 the barrage of things that interfere with them feeling safe that's going to promote a different kind of balance in these systems. But from the sleep perspective, in some, of, in some ways, these are very subtle shifts in the circadian system and subtle shifts in the sleep system. But in modern society, with lights and arousal and activity and social interaction, these subtle changes at puberty lead to patterns of behavior that have huge effect. The late-night erratic schedules in early school start high times lead to sleep deprivation that erodes mood and motivation. It creates more stress and affective problems. It interferes with sleep arousal regulation and balance. It interferes with metabolic regulation. It can create greater problems falling asleep. If the kids become obese and have sleep apnea, then that, there's another negative spiral. And the issue here is that it's a social context that's amplifying the biologic change, leading to a trajectory which is very, very hard to change later. This onset of adolescence is a key developmental inflection point in a number of ways. I'm going to go quickly over this, and I want to come back to the, what, what are the research questions? What can we do as investigators interested in getting traction and leverage on these systems? How do we recognize both the importance and complexity of sleep intertwined with these systems, particularly from a developmental perspective? and come up with questions about where can we find these leverage points. What are the developmental windows? What are the behavioral and motivational opportunities to get traction, to shift these systems in positive ways? These are very important and intriguing questions. And, and ways that, 
and answering them and getting evidence for them can inform clinical education and public health issues facing children and adolescents in huge ways. Now, I'm just going to take, I'm going to finish up with a few very brief practical examples of how do we go from this model to making a difference. Let's just take some of the most simple direct effects. The number of late night accidents, uh, young drivers clearly are heavily overrepresented. Uh, Falling asleep accidents are probably as important as alcohol accidents. I'm going to just give one simple example. This is one of many studies that have looked at changing school start times. Danner and Phillips uh, changed the school start times in a county in Kentucky by one hour. It resulted in an increase in sleep about 30 minutes in the average high school student. The proportion of students getting at least eight hours in bed increased from 35 to 50%. These are pretty modest effects. But driving accidents in 16 to 18-year-olds in that county decreased 16% over the next two years. Whereas, excuse me, accident rates in 16 to 18-year-olds in the rest of the state increased 7% over the same period. These are potent effects just at the simple level of accidents. Now, I'm not saying school start times are a magic bullet either. I think they help. But what if we combined changes in school start time with education programs targeting knowledge and attitudes about sleep? What if we began to shift attitudes to frame the importance and value of sleep, to examine the negative consequences that are relevant to the adolescents themselves, as well as their parents and teachers, to emphasize the positive aspects of getting more sleep? What if we target the enemies that further erode this in terms of how the wrong timing of catch-up sleep on the weekends and holiday schedule makes this a worse cycle? There are many interesting aspects of how we could package something that's not simply school start time, but could begin to target other aspects of this, particularly in some high-risk kids and some high-risk contexts. I'm going to give you a couple examples from work we're currently doing. We took this question in another slice of complexity related to kids with anxiety disorders. And kids with anxiety are particularly high risk for problems because they already are vigilant. They have increased physiological arousal. They have a predilection to worry and ruminate at bedtime. They have sensitivity to social rejection. They enter adolescence with all kinds of risk factors for worsening sleep. And we know anxiety is a risk factor for depression in adolescence. We know sleep deprivation is a risk factor for depression. And we know that depression rates soar during adolescence. So what if we take kids when they're 9 to 13, just ramping up into adolescence, beginning to have better control over their own sleep and patterns and habits, and in addition to treating their anxiety with cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure, we add in half of them a a cognitive behavioral treatment for sleep before their sleep has unraveled further in adolescence. And and we we developed what's called Sleeping Tigers. It's a six-week um, a cognitive behavioral intervention focusing on thoughts and feelings at bedtime. There's a motivational interviewing component, looks at habits in the day and night, establishing a regular schedule, restricting media, focusing on savoring on positive things rather than ruminating about negative things and switching effectively to the positive channel when they need to. And these are practical skills. And our prediction is, and we're four years into a five-year study, um, that this is going to influence not only their anxiety, but also their risk for depression. In another study in Pittsburgh, uh, Danny Shaw uh, is, is now running, uh, since I left, I'm still very involved in, we just looked at high-risk youth. Uh, they had a sample he had been following, low SES kids at high risk for a number of problems, uh, that he had picked up from uh, the early WIC program uh, study that he was running. And we said, as these kids hit 10 to 13, this is a really key time to try a positive health promotion intervention. We depict three things. We said, let's improve sleep, teach them good sleep habits, 
increase their physical activity, and improve their emotion regulation skills. And we did this through his family checkup model where we meet with the family, give them feedback about their child in these domains, and offer any one of those as areas they can work on to improve. And no matter what they pick, if they make progress, we say, well, you know, one helps the other. If you sleep better, you're going to be more likely to have energy to do physical activity. If you get good physical activity, you're more likely to sleep better. And if you sleep and get physical activity, you may be better regulating emotions. And if you're better regulating emotions, you're more likely to sleep better. And so what we do is we bundle these as one helps the other. And we, again, we're three or four years into this. Uh, we have one presentation at SRCD that we just submitted uh, today, uh, beginning with some preliminary positive effects from this interview. Uh, uh, but these, it's not that these are the magic bullets either. These are in investigations of how pushing in positive ways in areas we think will help our experiments themselves. So finally, I think the compelling questions uh, and the complex questions of these intertwining of sleep in the development of these regulatory and learning systems for us to face this field is how to slice into the complexities enough to look at, at, in our investigations, how to focus on specific windows of development. I happen to think the 9 to 13 early adolescent period is really exciting, but I think there are many other candidates that we could look at uh, that it could be as or more important. Looking at specific aspects of vulnerability, high-risk groups, high-risk environments, unique opportunities to impact negative versus positive spirals, where sleep and specific aspects of sleep can tip the balance toward a more positive trajectory. Targeted mechanistic investigations to really understand the role of particular mechanistic components that is going to increase our ability to target these interventions as experiments. And most importantly, it's going to take interdisciplinary teams working together. Measuring and modifying these things in real-world settings requires a lot of different kinds of expertise to do, this, to do the science well and to do these uh, interventions and studies well. Um, for specific approaches to obesity, there are all kinds of interesting questions that have already come up today. The paradox of activity. Adolescence is a time of increasing passions, but what happens to most adolescents? They become more sedentary. Uh, adolescents have a capacity for more self-regulatory control. It's a period of rapid growth. They're establishing new habits. Feelings of self-confidence and self-concept are being established in new ways. Um, rates of depression go up. There are social influences, and as I will be highlighting again and again in, in a lot of our work, uh, this issue of motivation, not just at a level of goal and executive function, but affective dimensions, feeling-based components of what we feel we want to do, desire, ambition, and an affective dimension. These intrinsic motivations, competitive motivations, are shaped by uh, social experiences in new ways in adolescence. Kids can fall in love, become pulled toward. It's not just making themselves do something like reading or exercise. They can fall in love with doing those things. And I think these are really important things to be in for, for investigation and how to take advantage of these. And I use this term affective learning. It's emotional learning. It's feeling-based changes and patterns of behavior that can help extend uh, these things in positive ways. And again, uh, we can focus in on the obesity and metabolic imbalance and the role of sleep in these other systems, but these are relevant to a huge number of vulnerabilities that emerge in adolescence and these increasing rates of morbidity and mortality. Thank you. Are you using that peers 
Yeah, so uh, it's a really important set of issues, uh, and I say set of issues because when I, when we, in our model of the increased motivational salience of social status, peers clearly are a huge, huge part of this, and many people have studied this, increasing adolescence, but I want to add a caveat. I, and we have some preliminary evidence for this as well. I think it's not just peers. I think kids become sensitive to being admired by teachers, by parents, by coaches, and I think that this sensitivity to gaining status and being motivated by that extends more broadly, and I think it tends to be peers and romantic interests and, uh, you know, increasing status of peers is clearly the heart of it, but I don't think it's only that. Part of what we do at a practical level, so without going into a long version of this answer, at a practical level, um, in our interventions, we tend to use motivational interviewing just to probe what are the personally salient aspects uh, of motivation that get real reactions from these kids that they can ground their motivation to change behavior in, including what time they go to bed. And that's quite variable, but it might be that their appearance, they they want to look better and they don't want to look tired. It may be, for some of them, they want to get good grades, but getting good grades may be part of being admired. For some of them, it's sports. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, and, And in some ways, almost it almost always links to a social domain, but the individual differences are quite varied. From a research perspective, we are asking more specific questions about what shifts at puberty in terms of these uh, uh, influences and uh, in the social networks. Uh, but, but I think ultimately we need to be giving a lot of thought and attention to this broad domain of uh, being admired, being liked, being valued as what makes kids feel safe and it has salience uh, to them in their lives. And, and those are really important factors. Thank you, Ron. That was fascinating. Um, I have a question uh, that relates to the end of adolescence. So you talked a lot about the neurobiology and the, the hormonal changes and all the things that fucks at the beginning of adolescence. Um, what do we know about the end of adolescence? Why, what, what's changing that makes a teenager then become not a teenager and become an adult? So it's a great question. Um, and uh, this issue of what is the end of adolescence, and it's certainly not, I, I, don't, I don't like using the word teen because I think adolescence begins before, thir- I mean, the, the average onset of puberty is between 9 and 11. And by 13, the average age of menarche is 13, and so that's almost the end of the physical process. So, so I don't think we should say teenage. And the end of adolescence has nothing to do with going from 19 to 20. Increasingly, and we've, we've written about this, the evidence suggests there is no biologic end of adolescence. It's a social construct. It is having fully adult status. And the anthropologists have actually had some really interesting contributions to this. Um, uh, uh, Schlegel and Barry wrote a whole book looking at adolescence across 187 traditional societies. And what they showed is every society recognized adolescence as different than children and not an adult. But the end of adolescence is being recognized as having full adult roles and responsibilities. Now, in contemporary society, when is that? Okay. I mean, we usually get a laugh because, you know, how many kids are graduating from college moving back with their parents? You know, I mean, when, when, is it when you get tenure? I mean, there's, there's really interesting <laughs> questions about when do you fully have adult status? And, and again, we can operationalize these in terms of adult roles, you know, uh, and it, but it's, it's a gray area. And, and the argument can be made 
and I've made this argument and I believe it, adolescence has expanded. Puberty is happening earlier and taking on fully adult roles and responsibilities. And that constrains behavior. I think part of the reason Till Ronenberg's data showed this sharp drop is once you get a job or you have a structured environment a certain way, you've got to get up at a certain time and the responsibilities impose. I don't think it's biology. I think it's, a, I think it's more social. Um, now, there are, you know, in some of the brain development studies, people interested in this. But in most studies I've ever seen, young adults look more like adolescents then, I mean, it's a very gradual shift at the end. And I think that the social constraints and responsibilities are a huge part of this. And I think that has important implications for how we even study adolescence. If the nature of adolescence itself is bounded on one side by biology, but on the other side by social context, it forces us to think about the interdisciplinary approach to this interval as a period of development. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.